Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 5th, 2022. Long-time viewers, listeners to the show know I have a, a weakness for prolific historians, people who can recreate the past and do it prolifically. And I'm thrilled that we have a particularly prolific historian on the show today. Helen Rappaport is uh, one of Britain's, I think, most distinguished popular historians. She's quite remarkable because not only has she written extensively about the Romanovs and the Russian Revolution, she has four books on the Romanovs, three on Lenin and, Rus and the Russian Revolution, which in itself uh, as a career would be quite an accomplishment. But she's also prolific in writing about Victorian England and women's history. And today we are talking women's history with Helen. She has a new book out, In Search of Mary Seacole, who herself is a remarkable woman. Uh, Helen's new book is called In Search of Mary Seacole, the making of a black cultural icon and humanitarian. Many of you uh, will be familiar with Mary, particularly if you're British. I think Americans are less familiar, but she was recently voted Mary Seagull, uh, Britain's most distinguished uh, black figure in history. Uh, Helen, welcome. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you very much for asking me. You're talking to me from Dorset. There are imminent storms and uh, Helen's dog is uh, sensitive to storms. So if you hear an explosion of barking, blame it on the weather. Um, Helen, tell me a little bit about the background of this book. As I said, you're quite prolific, uh, but there's quite, a, uh, there's quite a big jump from the Romanovs and Lenin to Mary Seacole. Well, in a way, my love affair with Mary Seacole and my interest in her spans the the arc of my writing career because I first discovered Mary it, it, back in about 2000, 2001, when I was doing my first work in publishing, writing reference material. And uh, I was asked to, to do a reference book on women's social reformers and uh, it was this, when I was searching for women of color, particularly women in the third world who hadn't previously been mentioned for their you know, pioneering work in nursing, medicine, suffrage, you name it. I came across Mary Seacole and something about her story really, really fascinated me. Uh, I will look at that face. It's a wonderful, yeah, sympathetic, and remarkable. Yeah, and Thanks. she has, uh, some, some yeah. of you will be familiar with Mary Seacole's portrait in the London National Portrait Gallery. Uh, you, you use the term um, uh, Helen Third World. Um, some people don't like that term. Um, perhaps you might talk a little bit more about what you mean by it and how that fits into the story. Oh, well, I'm using the terms of reference I had then 20 years ago. So forgive me if that's no longer acceptable. What I really meant by that was non-white British and American women. 
uh, because it would have been very easy when I researched that book just to end up with loads of middle class, nice white ladies who got into suffrage and women's rights and stuff or medicine. I, uh, I wanted to include women from the Caribbean, from Africa, from Asia, from India, anywhere I could find women who had been active campaigning for you know other women's rights so i cast a very wide net and i particularly wanted to find women of color and black women who'd been nurses because i knew that there was a nursing tradition in the caribbean uh, that went back to the doctresses on the plantations and so that's how i discovered mary and i was so caught up in her story um, even more so because quite soon after getting interested in her, I found the portrait of her. I discovered that portrait you showed, this one, by Albert Charles Challen. Um, it was a very complicated saga, but I, 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 I was able to identify and then buy um, that portrait, not for very much money because the artist was completely unknown. If it had been by a famous person, I would probably never have been able to, to to get hold of it. And I took it to the National Portrait Gallery and it's been there ever since. And it was when I'd found the portrait and I had Mary's face and I could see the strength of her personality that something made me feel very, very determined about piecing together her story because in the early 2000s, the, the internet was quite young and there wasn't much going about Mary, very, very rudimentary entries on her or mentions of her in a few reference books. And a lot of it had huge gaps or was just in, you know, not very rigorously researched. So that's where my search started. And that's why the book is called In Search Of, because over the last 20 years or more, no, it's nearer 20, 21, 22, I have been searching on and off for Mary's story because unfortunately at the time when I started work on her, I couldn't get any interest, raise any interest in a biography. So I had to kind of do other projects, as you said. I've, I've written on the Romanovs and Queen Victoria and all sorts of other things and and, Mary as such, I picked up my search for Mary after, in fact, you're showing there the cover of No Place for Ladies. Well, that was a book I wrote that was published in 2007 about women in the Crimean War. And of course, I was able at least in that to give Mary a whole chapter. Yeah, and, and that's where um, when I was trying to piece all this together and, and I want to try and piece a little bit more. The Crimean War does connect your interest because, of course, yeah. it was fought between Britain and the Romanovs. So was that also something that, um, that, that piqued your interest, her involvement in this on, on the British side in the war as a nurse in the war against Russia? Well, actually, the Crimean War had always been a pet subject of mine. Back in school, when I was about 14, I always remember we had the most wonderful and inspiring history teacher. And I remember very vividly her giving us um, lessons on the causes of the Crimean War. And and again, there was something about the tragedy, the, the un the the mm. terrible suffering of that war and of course the inspiration of Florence Nightingale and the nurses and the heroic suffering 
out on the Crimean Peninsula in that terrible winter of 1854-5. That had always been a passionate interest of me. And when I got into Queen Victoria, I did actually go to the Royal Archives and look at a lot of archival material connected with Victoria's interest in the war when I was doing No Place for Ladies because she took a very passionate and very involved interest in the plight of the war wounded and fundraising at home, you know, the public effort to support. So, so Helen, let's go back and, and excuse me if I'm asking a dumb question here. That's my job. Um, this portrait that now is in the National Portrait Gallery of Mary Seacole, did you buy the portrait before your interest in her? Or was this when you acquired the portrait, did that spark your interest in her? Did you know who she was when you bought the portrait? Oh, yes, no. Um, what happened when I got interested in Mary, I very quickly discovered one of the most important places I needed to go to to consult experts on the subject of the Crimean War and, and, and help find any possible evidence of Mary there was, of course, the Crimean War Research Society. And right from 2002, when I was first researching Mary, I was in discussion by email. I joined the society. I was in discussion with many distinguished and extremely knowledgeable military historians. Although I had to say that I had to fight against uh, a certain amount of entrenched prejudice and even hostility towards Mary, because at that time, many people claimed that, you know, she was a fraud, that she wore medals she hadn't been properly awarded and that she wasn't really a nurse. All she did was sell buns and cups of tea to the soldiers. So I, it was through talking to them that someone emailed me from another society. They'd been told about my interest in Mary and a guy from the Orders and Medals Research Society, which is very specific, emailed me one day just before Christmas 2002 and said, a friend of a friend has picked up this painting of a black woman wearing medals at a boot sale, uh, i.e. sort of an American yard sale, that kind of thing. And he, he wonders if it could be Mary Seacob, but he doesn't know much anything about us. So anyway... I was asked to identify the woman in the portrait. Well, from everything I knew, and there were one or two other images of Mary uh, <laughs> around, I, I immediately knew without a shadow of doubt that it was Mary. So I identified it. And then I, I kind of went into a kind of steaming desire, absolutely burning desire to make sure the painting went somewhere where people could see it, where Mary could be, you know, somewhere for the nation, because, you know, she was a, a British subject. She was a very proud patriot. She had made her, her mark in the Crimean War. I felt that she deserved to be up there in the National Portrait Gallery with some of the other ones. Yeah, so it's really a remarkable story. You're in a way, there's a sisterhood between you and Mary. So everyone knows the Crimean War for two things. You know it for a lot more. First of all, of course, the charge of the Light Brigade. And the second thing was Florence Nightingale. Mary Seacole, in some ways, is, I wouldn't say she's a competitor, but uh, she offers an alternative. She offers an alternative narrative, at least, to nursing in the Crimean War. 
uh, it's a long way, uh, Helen, from uh, the Caribbean, where Mary was born, to Crimea. Um, so perhaps you might briefly try to explain how she got from the Caribbean to the Crimea, and then we can talk about her experience in Crimea. Well, first of all, Mary sailed to England, actually from Panama, when she went to volunteer for the war. She was a very, very go-getting... Uh, okay, but where, so she was born in the Caribbean, right? She was born in, in Jamaica, but um, she um, went to Panama in the early 1850s to join her brother who was out there. A lot, a lot of Jamaicans went to Panama during the gold rush when they were building the first railroad across the so Isthmus. sort of the California for Caribbeans. Well, a lot of Jamaicans and other people from or the Jamaicans. Caribbean. Okay, so uh, she, how old was she when she went to Panama? Uh, when she went to Panama, she was already 45. And what had she done up until then in her life? She had been basically a lodging housekeeper, but with doctressing and nursing skills, because in Jamaica at that time, there, were, there was a considerable British military and naval base and what happened was a lot of the British white uh, military out there uh, fell sick with cholera yellow fever and when they were recovering or even when they were very ill and needed nursing if they were officers they could opt to go and and, and put up in the in the lodging houses and boarding houses of Kingston and many of the women who like Mary who ran lodging houses were also very skillful nurses and Mary had built a reputation for herself uh, first of all having learned doctressing and holistic skills traditional Caribbean skills at her mother's knee she then so how did she get, um, so how did she get her name um well that was her married name her name and, and that, I mean that is a fascinating part of the story because Mary was born Mary Grant illegitimately um of um, um uh, of, of a mixed heritage Jamaican mother and a white Scottish father who weren't married, of course. There were she many, was many Scottish. Her father was Scottish, and Mary was intensely proud of that Scottish connection, uh, almost more so than her Jamaicanness. Why? But, Did she know her father? I, I don't think, and I argue in the book, I think her father probably died when she was still a baby. But she Why had a romantic. She, she was had this incredible romantic idea of Scotland and Scottishness, and having she said, "I have good Scotch blood running in my veins." She was so intensely. She, she, she had a, I wouldn't say a fictional quality about it, but she certainly was a romantic. She was able to put together a good story. Oh, so absolutely. She was, uh, so she never really knew her Scottish father. She spent the first 45 years of her life as a, an innkeeper um, in... Not uh, an innkeeper. No, it was more than that. It, lodging, the lodging houses, board, boarding houses, were okay. like, uh, you know, they were respectable establishments. Yeah, well, and, so was an inn. But, so, so she, you see, she ran what Americans might think of as a bed and breakfast. Yeah, and then well, she ended, what we call bed and breakfast. Right, so then she ended up in, during the... Panama gold rush in the 1840s, you said she... 50s. 1850s. She ended up in Panama with her brother, and then what? 
Well, Mary was in Panama when she heard that the Crimean War had broken up. And you have to remember, all those years she'd been running a lodging house in Kingston, which was the major port in Jamaica, she had got to know many of the British Army and Navy officers coming and going onto the West India Station. And then when the war broke out, she heard that some of the regiments that she had come to be very attached to in Jamaica were now going to be sent out to Crimea. And she wanted to go and look after what she called my sons. She looked what upon What kind them. of relations would she have had with all these soldiers? As we know, British soldiers overseas often behave appallingly, um, especially when it comes to the local women. Was she, did she have fraternal relations with these men? Um, well, I, I, I know her husband. She she married a white merchant who came right. to Jamaica. Called so she Edmund. had that respectability. She had a white husband, and she was close to a lot of the the visiting soldiers. They had an enormous affection for her, the British uh, troops, and some of them are quite senior officers because she was. First of all, such a warm, vibrant personality. She was a wonderful cook. She was a terrific doctress, healer, nurse, whatever you like to call her. And they, right for many years, even after the Crimean War, many of them had the fondest recall and memories right. of Mary. So, her, And the kind of medicine that she was sort of intuitively practicing was a kind of holistic care and natural medicinal um uh, it was uh, technology which I, I assume she would have acquired from what her mother or from local yeah practices? she learned it there she learned it from her mother's knee the tradition of doctressing as some people call it or herbalism healing I, I various people use different ways of describing it actually began in the sick in the hospitals for sick enslaved people in Jamaica because mm. many of the Africans, who come from the very hot, dry climate of Africa, succumbed terribly to the terrible heat and humidity of Jamaica and fell sick. And so the these hospitals, they were known as hothouses, were set up on the plantations. And black and, and mixed heritage women would, you know, were trained up to nurse the, the enslaved people using, and this is where they were so skillful, they did not use allopathic medical methods. They used natural pharmacopoeia, the herbs and barks and spices and fruits that naturally grew in Jamaica, many of them in profusion. And they developed an entire pharmacopoeia. In Jamaica, there was some plant or herb or something that you could get from a doctress for almost every complaint under the sun. Okay, so Helen, so so this woman with these natural skills, she may not have even known she had them. She just knew about this stuff. Oh, um, she knew she had them. She was very proud of her skills. Um, she certainly she, doesn't sound like a shy woman, a retiring woman. So then she... She volunteers for the Crimea from Panama. So what, she sails to... No, no, no. She didn't volunteer from Panama. She couldn't volunteer from that distance. But she got herself on a ship. Now, in her life, from the early 1820s, Mary had become quite used, first of all, to sailing all around the Caribbean, 
and, uh, but also back and forth across the Atlant uh, Atlantic to London, to England. So she got on a ship and came to England and volunteered first at the, at the, for the Nightingale nurses, then for the quartermasters, quartermasters, the army medical services. Everyone turned her down. Of fobbing her off with various excuses. Why was it? Was there an element of racism? Oh, absolutely, yes, absolutely, without doubt. Certainly in terms of the nursing, because Mary wasn't the only black woman to volunteer as a nurse. There are two, at least two, other known West Indian women who also were turned down for being too black. So Mary, luckily, because she was such an enterprising and self-starting woman, and because she was a woman of business, she'd run yeah. lodging houses, she bought and sold goods, she'd made patties and cakes, she'd been a trader and an entrepreneur. She thought, right, well, I'm going to take myself to the Crimea, set up shop, offer my services to anyone who needs them in terms of you know, medical help and care, but also she also she primarily wanted to offer service in terms of providing comforts and hot food and a kind of refuge. And how to, would she finance this? She financed herself, but she, so had she was a businesswoman. A business and was her husband still alive when she did? No, this? no, he was dead. He died in um 1844, she had a business partner, a man called Thomas Day, with whom she had invested um, in going to Panama. She briefly and unwisely got involved in a mining investment that came to nothing, and I think she lost money on it. But Thomas Day was, again, a bit like her, a man of many talents and an entrepreneur. He was basically the, the chandler, the guy who went on ahead and got in the stores and the supplies, brought them across from Constantinople onto the Crimean Peninsula. And together they set up a very ramshackle-looking business um, about five miles inland. So, 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 sorry to keep on interrupting, uh, Helen, but it's, this is so interesting. So it was a business. The, the the goal was to help the soldiers, but also make a bit of money. Absolutely, because she couldn't give out free medicines and all food and and drink and and, and all kinds of help that she wanted to to offer people. Well, because she was turned she down by the British it. military. She had to fund it, and the way to fund being able to help anyone who she never turned anyone away from her door who needed help. But the way to fund it was, of course, to charge high prices to the officers for champagne and cigars and all the other little indulgences that they wanted. The only trouble is that, you know, under the old Victorian system, all these officers expected to have everything on the slate. And many of them ran up huge bills. Also, the war correspondents in Crimea weren't very good at paying. So there's a Ukraine. I mean, this is very contemporary because there's a Ukrainian perspective here too. Well, yeah, I mean, Crimea has been until fairly recently part of Ukraine, and now the Russians. Yeah, so are... where where did she go? Did she go to Odessa? What town was she in? No, 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 no. She was on the peninsula. Odessa's on the mainland of Ukraine. Okay. So was there a particular uh, town went... that she was working out of? She she went first to Constantinople. She couldn't sail directly to Crimea. It was a war zone. She had to get to Constantinople on on a, a merchant ship, um, and then at, at there had to wait 
<clears throat> excuse me, they'd had to wait for an army supply ship to take right. her across to Balaclava. So she ended up going on a, a ship full of cattle, I think, that were... So she so was the main... in Balaclava, where the fam... was that where the famous Charge of the Light Brigade was? Yeah, was but all the battles were over. When Mary didn't get there till the following spring, all the battles that happened the previous... It was the winter. ultimate farce of a war, appallingly run from both sides, right? Or all sides, the, from the Ottomans, the British and the Russians. Well, sorry, I didn't quite catch that. I mean, it was an appallingly run war. Well, I dreadful, mean, but... Uh, classic bureaucracies, mismanaging war on every front. But the, also, appallingly, the Russian losses were catastrophically high. Um, the, the, you know, it, it was far worse. I mean, the Brits lost, I think, was it, in all about 18,000 men, many of them from disease, malnutrition, frostbite, the cold, the, that terrible... Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is... Uh, so, so let's throw in, to add a little bit of colour here, excusing the, the, that bad joke, uh, Florence Nightingale. How does she play in this, Helen? Is she... So she she's part of the official world of British medicine and nursing and, mm. and, and, and looking after the men, right? Well... <sighs> I have to say at the outset that there's been a huge and misguided effort to make a vast issue about Mary versus Florence. It didn't exist. It's This is a, an entirely post-modernist... Well, I'm not suggesting that it's Mary versus Florence, but Florence is, is, is a big name, and I'm interested to see how her narrative played in with, with Mary's and, and how they compare and contrast. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. No, I'm just saying and... that I'm. there has been a huge emphasis. Right, I take the... that, and we're not going to go that direction. But but how would you compare Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole they in the two... context of the Crimean War? They Well, first of all, they operated in totally separate geographical spheres. Florence was over across the Black Sea, 300 miles away, at the British, uh, main British hospital at Scutari on the, on the Bosphorus. And Mary was in the thick of it, just two miles down from the front lines. So they were oh, two very different women. Florence was the face of official, recognised British army nursing. She was sent there with that job to organise female nurses to help the wounded. Mary was a self-starting entrepreneur, complete maverick in Florence's eyes, because she was outside Florence's jurisdiction. Did Florence know about Mary? Pardon? Did Florence, you, you said in, in, in Florence's eyes, did Florence oh, know about, about Mary? Mary? Yeah, she knew about Mary because word got back to her. At well, Mary, first of all, sorry, I should say, en route to Balaclava, when she stopped off at Constantinople, Florence, uh, Mary went to pay her respects to Florence Nightingale. Yeah. And many, many people have jumped to the conclusion that when Mary went up to Scutari Hospital, she went to say, oh, I want to come and nurse with you. And she didn't. That was not her intention. She merely wanted to say hello and, and basically ask for a bed for the night while she was waiting for the next ship across um, the Black Sea. Um, there was no question that Mary wanted to stay at Scutarian. She wanted to be, she said, 
near the front, near where her sons were suffering and dying and getting wounded and falling. So, so and Helen, um, lots of people have claimed that Florence Nightingale was the pioneer of nursing and one kind of modern medicine or another. Others have suggested that um, uh, that um, that uh, um, uh, Mary Seacole also pioneered a certain kind of nursing. How would you analyze? Uh, leave, let's leave Florence because I, I think she's a, a bit player in this narrative. Um, what is Mary Seacole's contribution to the development of modern nursing? Well, she didn't have a formal contribution because she was never recognized in no, the. But in your view, as a historian and as a, her biographer, I feel her contribution is very much as an inspiration, much, uh, sort of many, many decades later, not so much at the time to nurses, but when she was rediscovered by the feminist movement in you know the early 1980s and seen very much as you just flashed up as a nurse practitioner a kind of person who offered a a very rounded kind of care um a version of care she wasn't a rigid starchy stand by the beds nightingale nurse she was much more of a caregiver and in that sense you don't like florence do you helen um i i respect her and i admire her but she was the face of official nursing. Right. And she and Victorian was also, nursing. Yeah. Well, she created she was Queen it. Victoria, if Queen Victoria had showed up in Balaclava, right? You've got to give Florence her credit where due. She set up women's nursing as a, a, a respectable career for, for sort of financially distressed genteel women who until that time couldn't really have done anything. anything. It wasn't. I mean, as you say, well, you can't governors. really compare them. You, earlier in the conversation, you talked about choosing um, to write something about uh, uh, Mary because she, she was a black woman rather than a white woman. Um, another prolific historian I've had on the show, Antonia Fraser, she has a book on another 19th century yeah, woman, Caroline Norton. Norton, the case of the married woman who who pioneered legal rights for women, and particularly in terms of divorce. Uh, I'm guessing that's the kind of book that you weren't interested in writing. What is the real, uh, even if Caroline Norton did leave a real legal legacy, what, what is her legacy in your view, Mary Seacole? What is she Mary's left? Well, I think the word is in the subtitle of my book. She was a humanitarian. If you had to boil it down, she was a, a good Samaritan. In fact, some of the soldiers in Crimea referred to her as such. She was a mother, a wife, and a mother and a doctor and a nurse to all, as one of them summed her up. She offered a kind of oasis of comfort and caregiving in the middle of a war zone. Terrell, was she just a completely loving, sympathetic person? Everybody loved her? Oh, well, I haven't. The only hostile accounts I have to say I found of Mary are a couple of snidey remarks by Florence Nightingale. The soldiers <laughs> in Crimea loved her. Uh, I, Nightingale... I wish we could have met her. I mean, there's, there's got to be a movie here, Helen. I hope you've sold the movie rights to the book. Uh, well, there who's has gonna, been a... Who's going to pay Mary and who's going to play Florence? Oh, 
Mary, there are there there is a very very good black actress who appeared in an American play that transferred over from um, off Broadway earlier this year in London. It was called Mary's Sequel, Mary's Plural S. It was an awkward title, by, but it was written by an, a, a black American woman. And there was a wonderful actress who, to me, uh, was the absolute incarnation of Mary playing the lead part. And she'll have to forgive me because her name slipped my mind now. Unfortunately, production got cut short by half the cast going down yeah. with COVID. Well, we needed Mary in, um, in COVID. So let's fast forward a little bit, um, Helen, because it's, a still, it's an incredible story. So in 2004, she was voted the greatest Black Britain in a survey conducted by the Black Heritage website, Every Generation. When was she rediscovered, particularly by Black British people? The rediscovery of Mary, well, there were kind of two stages. The very, very first moment came when a group of wonderful Windrush generation black nurses from the West Indies in the early 70s went to Kensal Green uh, Cemetery in London, huge necropolis, and found Mary's completely abandoned and tumbled down grave and restored it because they discovered she had when she died in London in 1881, she had been buried at Kensal Green. And these nurses, I think, had the grave. It was reconsecrated in 1973. But there was quite a lull before things really got moving with the 80s when a small exhibition was set up by a couple of feminists who were very interested in Mary Seacole at Brent in north, the northern suburbs of London. About North black, London, yes. Yeah, about black people in Britain. And as a sort of offshoot from the exhibition, these two women um, thought it would be marvellous if Mary's forgotten memoir, Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands, could be republished because it had come out in mm. a very thin little paperback in, in 1857 and completely vanished without trace. So they took the idea to a small feminist press in Bristol, in the, in the west of England, called falling wall press and in 1984 they brought out a new edition of the memoir and slowly um, but surely over the next 10 years academic feminists began to rediscover mary and write articles about her and but the real turning point i think was first of all that 2004 vote but especially the 2005 bicentenary of Mary when I unveiled that painting at the National Portrait Gallery and also the first biography of Mary was also published, which is the major reason I wasn't able to publish my own that early. And I'm very, very grateful that I didn't because in the next 17 years, I, I found out so much more about her and I filled mm. in a lot more gaps. Well, let's end, uh, it's a fascinating subject. Um... Uh, let's end with something about the Caribbean. Uh, last month, I, I did a show with Monique uh, Roffey. I don't know if you're familiar with her. I've heard the, the name, yes. Yeah, she's the author of The Mermaid of Black Conch, which is a, a book about, uh, it's a magic realist book about uh, the Caribbean. Um, what You've suggested that Mary embraced her Britishness and Scottish father and so on and so forth. She 
went to nurse British soldiers in the Crimean War. Did she carry with her any affection for the Caribbean? What is oh, her yes. uh, what yeah. is her reputation in the Caribbean? Has she achieved the same sort of iconic status as she has in the UK? It's taken longer to to recover in, in Jamaica because of the lack of facilities and money and things to promote Mary. But from the 1950s, at the time of the 100th anniversary of the Crimean War, the first couple of institutions or um, student lodging buildings were named after Mary. And then there was a stamp and she was posthumously awarded the Jamaican Order of Merit. But most importantly now, they have established a national Mary Seacole Day in Jamaica in November. And so she will now be formally um, remembered every year. But they're terribly proud of Mary. It's just that they need more funding to really promote that pride in her. Do, and do you feel, um, Helen, you found her, the book In Search of Mary Seacole? Do you feel now that after this 20-year search, You've, you've nailed her? Not entirely. Mary, at times, is very economical with the truth in that short memoir she wrote. And there are many gaps in her to life. her credit, Helen, right? <laughs> uh, there I'm are many sure gaps Monique, in her uh, life. Monique um, Roffey would suggest that that's very much in the tradition of what she calls the magic realism of the Caribbean. So. Oh, definitely. She, definitely, yes. There are puzzles still, and I probably won't ever solve them, solve them, but I will keep on looking for Mary because she's such a wonderful, intriguing personality, so vibrant and larger than life. And I, I do find her in, inspiring. Yeah, I don't know how, the how you have the time to do all this. You've written so many books. But anyway, here's your new book, Helen Rappaport. In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Black Cultural Icon and Humanitarian. Um, it's, um, it's out now. Congratulations, Helen, on that. Thank um, you. And if you have time for reading other people's books, but what else do you read in addition to your own stuff? Well, I have, uh, for my new project, been reading a lot around late 18th century Russia and Catherine the Great for my sins. But aside from that, for personal pleasure, ever since I discovered I got Viking blood in my DNA <laughs> and went to Orkney, uh, I've been reading a lot about really early primeval Britain, the Neolithic mm -hmm. period. Did you read the Viking book? by? Uh, we had a, I can't remember the name, a lady, a female historian, uh, on the Vikings. Very interesting book. I watched all six series <laughs> of the Vikings, uh, which I was completely captivated by. And I'm now fascinated by Anglo-Saxon, uh, 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 the Anglo-Saxon period. And before that, uh, when you go to Orkney and you see how primeval Orkney is, those mm. wonderful, wonderful Neolithic settlements, the Standing Stones, it's 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 marvelous to discover that I've got that in my blood because I've got Orkney ancestors. So yeah, I've like been to Orkney. It's it's quite a trip and incredible experience and a beautiful island. Yes, it, it it's fascinating. So I've been reading a lot about early history, early British history, um, uh, and and I love books that convey a sense of place from a period about which I know so little. So. It's been very engrossing. 